Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tour.com. Here with me today is novelist and comics writer Mike Carey, or M.R. Carey, who has written for comics titles like Hellblazer, X-Men, X-Men Legacy, Ultimate Fantastic Four, The Unwritten, Suicide Risk, and Lucifer. He's also the writer of the Felix Castor novels. As M.R. Carey, he's also the writer of The Girl with All the Gifts. His latest book is Fellside, which is about a young woman who wakes up in a maximum security prison and has to contend with her own lack of memory and the strange things happening around her in the prison. Mike, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you, Vavis, and thanks for having me on the show. So let's start with the right now, now, the new novel, Fellside. It's pretty great, I have to admit. I've got about 20% left of it, so you know, make sure you don't tell me anything uh, that I don't <laughs> right. know yet. But it's really fantastic. Will you tell us a little bit about it and what your initial idea for it was? Was it an image, a thought, or a character? Um, I, I guess it was two things, actually. Um, I, I love enclosed settings. I love um, uh, very, very sort of um, claustrophobic worlds. The army base, the other gifts, um, and particularly the cell block where Melanie and the other children uh, are incarcerated was an example of that. I felt like prison um, even more so. Um, but I guess the other thing was that I wanted to write a story about addiction. I've, I've known uh, and been very close to people who've, who've struggled against addiction some of them successfully, some of them um, not so much. Um, and it, it's always been a, a, a topic that's fascinated me, but that I've fought shy of because I wasn't sure whether I was ready to, um, to tackle it. And it just felt like the right time. And I came up with the idea of a, a ghost story set in a prison. Um, so uh, a child, uh, the, the ghost of a child, um, in this most inappropriate of, of settings and the relationship between him and one of the prisoners. Now, I have to say, moving on to A Girl with All the Gifts, I'm not actually usually a fan of zombie novels. I tend to find the zan- the standard zombie, you know, a fairly boring adversary. There's a lot of lurching, there's a lot of moaning, and I kind of like my villains to be smart. But so The Girl with All the Gifts, I thought, was absolutely fabulous. I recommended it to so many Thank friends you. who felt the same way as me about zombie novels, and we were all ultimately so genuinely amazed at how much we liked it um, for so many, many reasons. Also found it so incredibly satisfying without, again, giving away the ending of it. But it's one of the most satisfying books I have read in a long, long time. And I mean that in the best possible way. Um, where did Melanie come from? Where did her story come from? And are you yourself a fan of zombie fiction in the sort of classic zombie fiction sense? I, I love zombie fiction. I love zombie movies. Uh, I've read, read more than my fair share of zombie novels. I love both the classic uh, zombie narratives and the kind of second stage zombie narratives that we're getting now because there seems to be this, um, this, this vogue at the moment for um, zombie novels where the zombie apocalypse has happened in background and something else is happening in the foreground. Um, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really interesting development. But this was a... And I guess Girl with All the Gifts was um, a direct result of being forced outside of my own comfort zone. I'd I'd agreed to write a story for a themed anthology, and the theme was school days. So I had to write a a supernatural story or a horror story or a dark fantasy story set in a school or referring to school as a setting. And I said I'd do it and couldn't come up with a single good idea. And then I woke up one morning with Melanie kind of in my head, uh, a 10-year-old girl, a very engaging, very intelligent, very uh, brave and you know, lovable young girl 
who is also a zombie, who is a monster, but doesn't know that she's a monster. Um, and you know, the, the, the point of the narrative partly being her discovery of what she is, of her place in the world and the decision she makes as a result of that. Now, I know you've done the screenplay adaptation for The Girl with All the Gifts, too. Was that the first time you've adapted your your own novel or your, your own work for screen? And what was that like? Yes, it was the first time. And it was uh, it was an absolutely wonderful process, um, an incredible privilege. In, in a way, the movie is not so much an adaptation of the novel as um, an alternative route through the same the same fiction, the same story. I'd, I'd written the short piece, uh, which is not called Girl with All the Gifts, it's called Iphigenia in Aulis. Um, and I pitched the novel, and at the same time I pitched the screenplay, and I was writing the two side by side, which was amazing. Each of the stories kind of um, fed on the other and, and ricocheted off the other in really productive ways. I felt like I was sort of living and breathing in that world. I had no idea that you were writing both of them simultaneously. That's really interesting. Is that something, I have no idea if that's something that happens commonly. It's never happened to me before. I've never heard of it happening anywhere else. You know, usually you write the novel and then it gets optioned and then um, somebody writes it. And if you're very, very lucky, you stay involved with the project. Right. Um, so this was, this was sort of unique. And the other thing that was unique um, was that the director, Colin McCarthy, was involved long before there was any kind of development money, before we had any kind of a, um, an official project, uh, he and the producer, Camille, and myself were kind of brainstorming it together, which was um, just, just, just really exciting and really rewarding. Are you pleased with where the movie's headed? Are you nervous? I'm ecstatic. I'm absolutely delighted with it. It could not possibly have gone better. Um, it, the, the movie... That, that appears on the screens is the movie that was in my head. Uh, that partly that was because the director was involved right from the start, and it, it, we shared, we shared the vision. Um, he he has said in interviews, film development is wonderful when you're all trying to make the same film, and that was very much the case here. We all knew where we were going, and we were all going in the same direction. But we were also incredibly fortunate with the casting. Uh, Glenn Close plays yeah. Caroline Caldwell. Uh, Gemma Arterton plays Helen Justineau. Paddy Considine plays Sergeant Parks. And we, we found a wonderful, incredibly talented um, newcomer to the screen, Senya Nanoa, to be Melanie. It sounds to me like such a rare, um, so, such rare synchronicity when all this is happening at the same time. It doesn't sound realistic. You hear so much stuff about books being developed into movies that you know stuff falls apart all the time but this is strange in that a it was happening at the same time as you were writing the book and b that you seem so happy about it which is fantastic of course well i, th I think generally speaking if, you, if you're the if you're the writer of the novel and somebody options you know production company options your novel it's much much easier for them to uh, to find production money if you are not attached right. as writer because the the the, the co-producers, the, um, the distributors, you know, the financiers of the movie will be looking for people with a proven track record in screenwriting and most novelists, myself included, don't have that track record. Um, so it, it's, it's quite rare for the original writer to stay, to stay attached. Uh, it's quite rare for a movie to go ahead with just, a, just one writer through all of the many drafts. Um, so it was just, it was just, uh, it was just a perfect process. And when do we see the film? 
in the UK, it's going to get its release on the 9th of September. Um, oh, this year, is the, it? Yes, that's right. Um, but a lot of the other territories um, in the world haven't been sold yet. We're, we're hoping to, um, to make an announcement soon uh, to, to finalize deals for, for, other, you know, for other places. So that's quite exciting. It's sooner than I thought. It's sooner than I thought, too. We were, we were thinking October, but um, it's the, the very first week in September, 9th September, second week. Um, it's sort of end of the summer, right after the, um, the season of the Hollywood blockbusters, um, which is kind of a sweet spot, I gather, in the, in the sort of annual, in the film year. I'm looking forward to that. Now that I know you wrote both of them simultaneously, it's going to be a whole other kind of experience to watch. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> now, all these comic books you've written, X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Lucifer, some of these you were in charge of entirely, some you wrote certain arcs for in an existing world. What was it like playing in existing universes? Were these the worlds that you were first a fan of and a writer of second? Uh, mostly, that, that, yeah, it was exactly that, yeah. I mean, I grew up um, reading comics. I actually learned to read from comics before I ever read a book. And they've always had a, a sort of big part, a big place in my life, particularly with the X-Men. I think the X-Men and the Fantastic Four were my two favorite comic franchises as a child. And there's something very special about adding chapters to a story that you read and loved uh, in your own childhood. It's, it's, um, it's hard to describe. It's very, very um, fulfilling. And I was able to, uh, to cherry-pick with the X-Men, too, to choose the characters who meant most to me, the characters who I'd, um, I'd felt the strongest attachment to. I think if, you, if you're writing for the American market, then most of the time you're going to be using characters and, and writing in continuities that other writers have created. That's the, um, the, the, the sort of the, the core of the industry, I think, in America. But I, I had the incredible good fortune to start out by writing um, in the Sandman universe. Lucifer was um, in some ways a sequel to Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which at that time was um, the comic that I loved more than any other. And it was also a comic that I think had redefined what you could do in long-form storytelling in a comic. There were things that Gaiman was doing in that book that nobody had ever done before. And I, was just, uh, I just felt incredibly privileged to be able to carry that on, to use the stage that he'd created, which was sort of a mythology that was so big, it included all of the, the world's existing mythologies within it. Now, writing comic books as part of this sort of crazy, long, ongoing series, making sure there are no inaccuracies or overlaps or inconsistencies, obviously that also must take a hell of a lot of research and reading, and I assume a great deal of collaborative work as well? Yes, you, you have to, and you're always collaborating with your artistic team. Um, you're always sort of part of a, a chain there. Um, so typically the writer and the penciler will communicate with each other a lot. Sometimes the, uh, the inker and the letterer and the colorist will be in that conversation too. Obviously the editor is keeping the whole conversation going. But if you're writing something like X-Men, there's an additional level of complexity because it's a franchise book. It's part of a, a very large line of comic books. Right. Uh, some, some of them monthlies, some of them miniseries, some of them one-off specials. So at the same time that you're writing these characters, half a dozen other writers um, are writing them too. And you have to be aware of everything else that's going on um, in those other books. You have to negotiate, uh, make sure that the beats that you have planned for the characters are not contradicting things that other writers have painstakingly set up. Um, 
so you have to yeah there's a lot of give and take there's a lot of um a lot of negotiation i guess and of course it must be a little daunting sometimes as well to be writing for an existing and already existing pre-existing massive fan base with very very shall we say passionate fans who know every nuance of the comic so far and obviously must have you know their own ideas of where something should go where someone should go Yes, yeah, very much so. I, I found that um, as soon as I started writing X-Men, it was one of the first, um, the, the sort of first realizations that hit me, that, that the fans I was, uh, I was writing for had a, a, a relationship with these characters, which predated my coming onto the book by many, many years and would continue for many, many years after I left the book. Um, and initially that was a little bit paralyzing. You know, the realization that... Um, almost anything you decide to do that changes the status quo for a character is going to be controversial. Nick Lowe, who was my first editor on X-Men, said to me quite early on, you just have to basically put that out of your mind because whatever you do, it's going to be somebody's dream come true and it's going to be somebody else's worst nightmare. So you, 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 you have to, I mean, obviously be respectful of continuity, be respectful of the characters, but you can't... um, you can't obsess too much on uh, the sensibilities of the readers because the readers don't speak with a single voice. Uh, and what they want is not, uh, not always going to be the same thing. Uh, to take an obvious example, I created a relationship between Rogue and Magneto. Right. Um, there is a, a very large and very passionate fan base for the Rogue-Gambit relationship. There is also um, a very vocal group that doesn't like Rogue with Gambit and prefers to see Rogue with somebody else. Um, so starting this relationship off um, was massively controversial and, and um, just, just got, got a level of, uh, of commentary that, uh, that took me by surprise, even though I'd been working on the X-Men for about five years at that time. And tell me the name of one comic book character who you'd want to write, one you haven't written yet. And, you know, what would you do with him or her, them? Oh gosh! Um, I normally answer Doctor Strange to that question, the uh, the sorcerer who lives in the Marvel yeah. universe and hangs out with superheroes. Right. But actually, I did I did manage to uh, to write a, a Doctor Strange prose story for for a small anthology. So I've kind of scratched that itch. Uh, it's very pleasant to do. Um, I would love to write the Grant Morrison version of the Doom Patrol. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. A little bit. What would you do with I, I, with that? Oh, I, I, I don't know what I would do with them, but I just think that uh, what he did with that team was just the best superhero narrative that has ever been written, um, even eclipsing the sort of wonders of the Silver Age, Fantastic Four and X-Men. He, he just, he created a team made out of um, misfits, um, outcasts, very, very um, strange characters, but he made you feel for them uh, very deeply. And every issue was a, was a revelation. Give me the name of one comic book character you'd love to kill off. And of course, in which way you'd love to do that? Um, the trouble is, you, can't, you kind of can't. You can't kill comic characters. But if characters, you could, I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not being, you know, this is not reality we're looking at. Just, you know, if you could. There's um, got to be one you really either dislike or you really would enjoy killing off. There's always someone. Um, I've never had a huge amount of time for Superman. Really? I, I, I That's think, interesting. Yeah. I, I, I think he's um, he doesn't Overrated. work for me. He's, <laughs> he's, um, he's got such a ridiculously um, 
extended power set, there is almost no way to create a, a viable threat for him. And at the same time, he is kind of um, kind of smarmy and holier than thou. Right. There's a mo- there's a moment in the the Dark Knight comic book that Frank Miller wrote in the in the in the uh, 1980s, where Batman calls Superman the big blue schoolboy, and yeah. that, that that's that's kind of how I see him. Um, but the thing about death in comics is de- death is is only a little bit worse than a head cold. If a superhero dies in a comic, they will come back the next the next year. Sometimes they'll come back the next month. Right. So you get so you get all of these big fanfares, you know, in this issue, not a hoax, not an imaginary story. In this issue, an X Man dies, um, and then they come back three months later. Yeah. So, of all your work, is there anything you wish you could go back to and do again? Not necessarily that you would do it differently, but perhaps you do it, say, with more experience now as you've evolved as a writer or, you know, with a different vision than you had before. I guess in one way what I'm saying is, you know, do you ever wish you could go back and cannibalize your own ideas, use them now for something better than you were able to do when you were a less experienced writer? Yeah, all the time. Um, I, I, I think with a novel, uh, it's different. It's different than, than it is with comic books because a novel you live with for six months, nine months, a year. Right. And, and, and at any point in that, time you can completely overhaul it so with Felside, for example the narrative voice changed dramatically in the first draft uh, one of the minor characters Sylvia Stock the nurse um, was the narrator and then in subsequent drafts uh, I, I, I used sort of uh, an engaged third person narrator just as I had in Girl with All the Gifts um, so you, you, you have that, that, that freedom and that sort of flexibility. With a comic book, you're writing monthly installments usually, and they're going straight off to the uh, to the artist as soon as they're approved. So if you're writing a, a comic book arc that takes place over uh, four or five or six issues, and you get three or four issues in, and you think, ah, I should have introduced this character earlier, or I, I, I should have seeded this particular beat, um, or, or planted a clue. You can't. It, 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 it's already out there. It's already... Um, set in stone. So with comics, uh, I frequently sort of reached a point where certain things that I would have loved to do, I couldn't do because I hadn't done the setup. Um, or I couldn't do well because I hadn't did the set, done the setup. In, in Lucifer, there is a character, um, Lilith, who was um, Adam's first wife in the Garden of Eden. And she comes in, she, she has a very, very large part to play in the finale to Lucifer. And bear in mind, yeah, I wrote that book for like seven years. It was uh, 78 issues in total. Um, but, but Lilith isn't even introduced until issue 50. I, I, if, if I could go back in time, I would have had a couple of issues at least that, that uh, set up her story in the first third of the storyline. Just an aside from what you said in answering that question, is that how fast you do write your novels? Six months, nine months? Um, it, it, it varied a lot. Girl with All the Gifts was, came very quickly. And I think that was partly because I'd already written the short story and I had a very, very strong sense of who the characters were. Felside was slower. Felside went through multiple drafts and a lot of things changed. And that was because I was... Um, at, uh, a lot of reasons. Partly because um, it's a very large cast and it's a world that, um, that I, I had to sort of feel my way into. Uh, as, as, as I created it, and partly it was um, it was finding an approach. That the, there, there are some very um, very delayed reveals 
in Felside, there are some things that only become clear very late in the story. And it was finding a way to, um, to stage the story so that I could hold back crucial information from the reader without, without kind of um, uh, hamstringing the, the forward momentum of the story. Now, you've got this fantastic repertoire of work in all these different mediums. Did you, when you first started writing, have any ambitions of coming, you know, this far? Or did you have other goals in your mind? I started out as a, as a hobbyist. I, I, I just wrote for, for pleasure. Uh, and I did that for many, many years. I was actually uh, in my 30s before I really started writing as a, as a, as a career, as a, as a, as a uh, profession. And it was, it was a... A huge surprise to me when I started getting paid for what I wrote. When I started out, I was doing comics journalism. I was doing articles and reviews for magazines, and it was just—it was alongside my regular job, which was teaching. Uh, and for 15 years, I thought of myself as a teacher who just wrote on the side. Uh, and then, very, very gradually, I became a writer who also taught. Um, so I had no ambitions, and I've never really—I've never really had a, a plan. I just I just wander into things. Um, there's there's a there's a a factoid a factoid that I found out from a nature documentary, which is that um, if you put uh, bees honeybees into a bottle, this would be a very cruel thing to do, but if you put honeybees in a bottle, and you put the bottle so that the closed end the the, the wide end is up against a window, and the open end is away from the window, the bees will die because they will go toward the light. They, they, they're, um, they have enough of an instinct that they will, they will go toward the light, thinking that that's where the exit is. If you put houseflies in a bottle in the same situation, they will all escape because they will fly randomly around until they find the way out. Um, I'm a housefly. I, I, I do a lot of things uh, with no sense of direction. I experiment a lot. I play around a lot. Um, I do things for no reason, and some of them work out. You've been wandering quite well then, haven't you? <laughs> in, in recent years, I have, yeah. yeah. Um, a, lot, a lot of my wandering has, uh, has taken me in good directions. Now, you mentioned teaching a little while ago, and I was reading just yesterday about how when you co-wrote with your wife and your daughter, uh, there was an interview with all three of you, and I think it was your daughter who was saying that you were at the same time sort of almost teaching her things about plot and narrative while you guys were writing together. What was that experience like? It was wonderful. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed those collaborations. There was, there was a collaboration with myself and Louise, uh, my daughter, that was called Blabbermouth or Confessions of a Blabbermouth, comic book uh, that DC produced. And then there were the two novels that um, that all three of us wrote, Linda, Louise, and myself. Um, they were uh, they, both of those collaborations took place immediately before I wrote The Girl with All the Gifts, and I think. I'm not sure that I would have been able to write The Girl with All the Gifts if I hadn't just come out of an extended process where I was co-writing with two very strong, um, strong-willed women. Um, the, the interesting thing about collaboration is that it changes your voice. You have to converge on a style that works for yourself and for your collaborators. And in doing that, you, you, you self-consciously play with style and with approach and with uh, voice and point of view. Um, and it sensitizes you. It makes you much more aware of the, the, the default options, you know, the decisions that you normally make without even being aware that you make them. So I came out of those two books in a very different place from where I went in. And, and then immediately on the back of that, I wrote The Girl with All the Gifts, which I think was a a huge departure for me creatively. I think it was unlike anything I'd done before. 
Were your writing heroes as a teenager still, are they still the writers you admire today? Some of them, yes. Um, I, re- I read Roger Zelazny a lot, the American sci-fi writer. I read Ursula Le Guin. I discovered um, her young adult fiction, you know, the Earth Sea books first, and then, and then later sort of graduated to uh, the Ecumen novels and um, her, her mature stuff. Um, some of the some of the fantasy books I read as a teenager were not that good. They were not that well written. Um, I read uh, Michael Moorcock's Eternal Champion books a lot, which which were you know, which by his own admission were pop boilers. He would write three or four a year, um, and and just pick up the check and use it to um, to edit uh, New Worlds, the, mag- the sci-fi magazine that he was in charge of at that time. Um, and I also read the sci-fi novels of E. E. Doc Smith, which are terrible. They're just um, appallingly jejune in their, in their writing style and kind of offensively right-wing in, in, their, um, in their point of view. Um, but I, 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 read, I read voraciously. I read anything and everything that fell into my hands. I had no standards. I had no um, quality control. And I think that's, that's, that's fine when you're young. Yeah, that's you know, how it should be. Every, everything goes in, uh, and, and eventually you find your level. You find the stuff that uh, that you're going to love forever. Um, the, the relationships that will just um, sustain you through the rest of your life. But but nothing is wasted. It it all it all um, still churns around in your head. Now, what's new and exciting for you after Fellside? And alternately, what's a new and exciting thing that you've recently discovered that isn't by you? Okay, well, uh, for me, uh, what's, what's new and exciting? I've just finished um, the, the novel that will come after Fellside, uh, which is called Bedlam Bridge, and which I'm very proud of. Um, it's different again from Fellside. Um, the main characters are um, a woman, a biologist, um, and she she has a a kind of uh, teacher-student relationship with a young autistic boy who is uh, something of a savant, something of something of a genius. I'm very pleased with how that came out. Uh, I just finished the first draft, and I'm still living with it. I haven't delivered it to my publisher yet. Um, I'm also doing a lot of screenwriting work. I'm working on um, a pitch for a movie version of Fellside. Uh, I'm working on uh, an, an adaptation of a novel by a writer I hugely admire. Um, I guess I can't announce that yet, but I'm having a, a, a whale of time with that. Um, in terms of stuff that I've discovered and, and loved recently, um, I can't um, speak too highly of um, Cuckoo Song by Francis Harding. I think it's a masterpiece. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful story. Um, incredibly moving, incredibly well written, um, and emotionally uh, immersive. I'm agreeing with you, furiously nodding my head again. Um, you, you, you like Francis' stuff? Have you I do. Light? I like her work a great deal, and I, I agree with everything you just said about Cuckoo's Song as well. It's, uh, it, I, th- I think um, uh, Trista is a startling creation. Um, I, I, I asked her when I met her uh, whether she was ever going to go back to that world because it has a very open ending, and, and it would be possible to create a sequel. But she said that she, she likes the open ending. She likes the um, She wants the reader to kind of continue the story for him or herself though you know never say never we can hope yes <laughs> agreed all right lastly from a, a question from one mr carry on twitter will you tell us a little bit about this pantera comic you wrote please 
Oh, right. Yes. Um, uh, it took me a long, long time to get into writing at all, you know, to, to, to get anything that I wrote published. And at one point, um, I, I, I was briefly connected to Malibu Comics just before they, um, they were bought out by Marvel and ceased to exist uh, as an entity. But they, they had a, an imprint called Rocket, R-O-C-K hyphen I-T, comic books about rock stars. And I got to write a comic book about the, the heavy metal band Pantera. Really? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of heavy metal. I'd never listened to any of their stuff. Um, but they offered me the book, and I said yes. And it was built, it was basically, it was working to a synopsis that the lead singer, Phil Anselmo, had, had written for himself. And the synopsis was, the heavy metal rock band Pantera are kidnapped by evil vampires. The evil vampires torture them but cannot break their spirit because Pantera are men and they are strong and they are brave. <laughs> and, and most of the rest of the synopsis was a list of the tortures. It was just a list of the awful things that the vampires did um, to Phil and his colleagues. Uh, and then at, at, the la at the last moment, they break free and kill the vampires and there's a happy ending. So that was what I had to turn into a story. Fortunately, nobody ever bought it. I think there was a print run of 5,000. They, they sold maybe three copies oh. and the rest are in the rest are in a warehouse somewhere in Texas, where they will stay. Forever. Are you just are you just waiting till the day they're pulped? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I am. Um, I, I think if uh, if anybody sort of finds a copy and, and buys it and reads it, I'll have to kill them. I'll, I'll regret it, but I'll have to do that. People are going to go can't... scurrying for this warehouse now. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be allowed out into the world. Well, it got you started, didn't it? It did, yeah. Uh, and and uh, and again, nothing is wasted. When, 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 you're, when you're starting out as a writer, you sort of feel often that you're taking one step forward and then 17 steps back, but nothing is wasted. You know, you're, learning, you're learning your craft and you're learning how to, how to work in that sort of uncertain freelance environment and you know, making a go of it. All right. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I hope we speak again when the next novel is out. That would be great. Thank you, Mavash. It's been, it's been fun.